take it away? Okay, Courtney, I will. Exodus chapter 32. Let's begin with the 19th verse, if you have your Bibles. Moses came down to the camp. He saw the golden calf and the dancing, and he became very angry. I guess he did. He threw down the, the tablets he was carrying and broke them at the bottom of the mountain. They took the calf that the people had made and melted it in the fire. He ground it into powder. Then he threw the powder into the water and forced the Israel, Israelites to drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you? Made you cause them such a great sin. Aaron answered, don't be angry, master. You know, these people are always ready to do wrong. The people said to me, Moses has gone out of Egypt, but we can't know what, ha what happened to him. Make us gods that will lead us. So I told the people, take your gold and jewelry. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. We, we've been kind of looking at those, those bizarre, wild uh, conversations in the Old Testament. Last week, of course, maybe the most wild, Balaam talking to a donkey. Uh, but this week, it, it's Moses and Aaron conversation that I think is downright funny. But to get to conversation, we've got a kind of backstory. You, you've got to understand Aaron. The big, the big problem that I see with this guy, we all got problems. The big problem with Aaron, he's gutless. He doesn't have a backbone. He's, he's physically strong. He's a really good speaker. He's, he's an outstanding craftsman, but he doesn't have a backbone. He, he can be easily influenced with right or wrong. I mean, consider Aaron's style. I think if you talk to Aaron for a few minutes, you can figure out who he spent the day with that day. If he'd been with Moses, he talked one way. If he'd been with Miriam, he talked another way. If he's with the grumblers, he's talking another way. I think he's got a lot of descendants, doesn't he? How many people do you know is a reprint of the person who had their ear last? So easily swayed. So, so easily influenced. So little character. There's a great statement that says, A person with no character makes no decisions for themselves. They're always made for them by the majority. Chew on that one. A person with no character never makes a decision for themselves. They're always made for them by the majority. I think this is a particular issue with young people and, and teens. This, this huge desire to fit in. I mean, that, that's natural. I get that. But they've learned how to act one way with adults to be accepted. Another way with their friends. Another way with church people. Another way at home. Another way at school. And they're so good at it. When they're alone, they don't know who to be. They, they've lost themselves in the crowd. And so we got young people out there trying to find themselves. They're so good at being what everybody wants them to be that when they get to be whatever they want, they don't know who they are anymore. And those young people then have become adults. And they got lost in the crowd of me. So susceptible to what culture calls groupthink, we end up with a culture of mobs. That's Aaron. So incredibly easily swayed. As long as Moses is with him, he's said fast and strong. Moses is gone. Skeptics, Aaron can be won over pretty easily. This constant decision of character. That might be one of the finest of all of our characteristics. People who hold life with, with weak and nerveless fingers are, are scared at every turn. Someone who is weak and pliable never belonged to themselves. They're the plaything of everybody else. So I guess the first question that's, that's at least fair at this stage, do we have the character to say no when no is the right answer if everybody else is saying yes? And I guess flip it. Do we have the character to say yes 
if yes is the right answer, when everybody else is saying no. That's a character issue. Can we stand for truth against all comers? Right is never formed by the majority of opinion of the bystanders. Right is never formed by the majority opinion of the bystanders. So with, with that kind of an emotional, mental background, boom, let's go, let's go to the story. The narrative. God has used Moses. You know the story. He led the nation out of Egyptian bondage through the Red Sea, pillar, pillar of fire, cloud, leading them all the way. Now they're there, Holy Land, Mount Sinai. And Moses is to go up the mountain to receive the law. Now, Sinai, this is not Mount Everest. It's a big mountain, but again, it's not Everest. He could get up there a couple of days, two or three days. They figured, okay, he's got two or three days up there, two or three days down, a couple of days with God. Give him a week. Two weeks, worst case scenario, he'll be back. But those days... They grow into day after day and week after week after week. And the problem is, Moses has told us it's a holy mountain. You can't go up there. So we can't go check. Did he die? I mean, is he hurt? There's a lot of dangers in those mountains. Did he fall? An animal? You can see it, their, their imagination begins to run wild. We figured a couple days up, a couple days with God, a couple days down. The guy's back in a week. Two weeks, worst case. And now the weeks are beginning to add up. Of course they're thinking, how long are we going to sit at the base of this mountain waiting for a guy who very well might be dead and we can't go check? Forty days sitting at the base of the mountain. I thought, okay, let's create a perspective for us. It's August 23rd. That's why you come. I'm, I'm information. Subtracting 40 days for us, Moses would have left July 15th. Think about what you've done between July 15th and now. Think of how much life you've lived between July 15th and now. They sat at the base of a mountain doing this. So, and remember, they really believed he'd be gone a few days. Sitting at the base of the mountain, the grumblers began to take off. And they'd been grumbling all the way out of Egypt. They'd been whining and complaining there's an old leadership cliche that says that someone came into the camp of the Israelis and said, which one is Moses? And the answer was, look for the guy with the arrows in his back. That's a lot of truth in that. They've been grumbling all the way. Now, they've amplified it. You can hear them, can't you? We're stuck here. If all is well, wouldn't Moses be back by now? I mean, wouldn't he? It's impossible to be up there 40 days unless something's gone wrong. Wake up and smell the coffee. Whether they had coffee or that, I don't know. But you can hear, and the truth is, they do make some sense. How in the world can he be up there that long unless something's gone wrong? And how long are we going to hang down here? Now, the nation had been under Egyptian captivity for 400 years. So, you know, their, their parents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-grandparents, you can't help but be part of the, the Egyptian culture at some level. It's ingrained in them. There, there's an old saying, Israel got out of Egypt, but we didn't get Egypt out of Israel. Their culture had been these elaborate gods that were made of very precious metals. Moses is gone. The culture is, is gods. Make us a god to lead us. So Aaron makes this golden calf. And now, finally, 
Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He sees the debauchery going on. He sees the golden calf. And to say the least, he's ticked. He's had this great experience, this holy event with God, and he comes down to this chaotic mess. He immediately recognizes the craftsmanship of Aaron. It dawned on me. Aaron had to be a great craftsman. He's not the only guy in the camp that could do this. He immediately recognized it was Aaron's work. I, I think there are craftsmen that when you see it, you know they did it. Maybe the easiest example is the painter Picasso. Now, I'm not into Picasso. I think it's weird. That's not the issue. If I see a Picasso painting or, or a reprint, I go, that's a Picasso. Nobody else is that weird. You know, so. But the bottom line is if you see a Picasso, you kind of know it's a, it's a Picasso. If you see a Norman Rockwell, you kind of know it's a Norman Rockwell. Aaron had that unique gift. You saw his work and you went, Aaron's, Aaron's work. Well, the golden calf, Moses comes down. He doesn't say, who in the world made this? He makes a beeline to Aaron. And Moses confronts him. And here comes the conversation. Why'd you do this? Aaron's reasons are our lessons for us. They didn't deceive Moses. I'm not sure they even deceived Aaron. His response is so ever-loving, lame. Aaron lives in what I call the land of excuses. God in heaven. May I not live my whole life in the land of excuses. I pray that you don't live your life in the land of excuses. Because people who live in the land of excuses, who are swayed by the crowd, never take personal responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. Moses gets up, Aaron, what'd you do? Aaron blames the people. It's those people. He lives in a life of, of excuses. He says, you know... It's those pesky people. Exodus chapter 32, take a look at it. Aaron said, let that the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest these people. They're set on mischief. The land of excuses. Yeah, I didn't do, no, I didn't do nothing. I didn't, I didn't do nothing. I'm, I'm innocent. It's those people. Those pesky. You know those people. They're always in the mischief. Moses' answer is so wise. Exodus 32, 21. Take a look. What did these people do that thou hast brought this great sin? What did they do to you to make you do this? That's a pretty, pretty fair answer in our conversation. So Aaron realizes that didn't work. He couldn't blame the people. Next, buckle up. I think it's one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Aaron literally blames the fire. Exodus 32, 24. You think I'm kidding? And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, I cast it in the fire, and there came out this calf. It ain't me. I threw the gold in the fire, out came this calf. Who knew? Presto, change, one of the great magic acts of all time. I just read it to you, isn't that what he said? I threw the gold in the fire, out came this calf. I was more surprised than anybody else. I think it's one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Who knew? Who saw that coming? I tossed it in. Out it came. It's not my fault. It's the fire. If you look at the entire conversation, Aaron never does take responsibility. But before we blame Aaron too much, let's recognize this is not uncommon. How often, instead of coming before God and just admitting guilt 
and repent, do we resort to its circumstances? It's the fire. I'm a victim. And fact of the matter is, if I'm a victim, I have no need to repent. This is a very subtle attack of the enemy. If I'm a victim, I have no need to repent. Satan's effective here. It's my friends, it's my work, it's my family, it's my church, it's the media, it's the school, it's the culture, it's the COVID. They created this character. My, I, I threw my principles in the fire and out this came. I didn't know. Who knew? I think sometimes we see ourselves and we're spiritually disappointed and we say, the fire made this. I'm a product of this ridiculous world. It's the fire's fault. I put my ethics and standards in the fire, and out came this. I was as surprised as anybody else. So before we laugh too much at Aaron, we, we got to look in the mirror. It becomes kind of scary here. There are people in their whole lives saying it's the fire's fault. This was not an excuse effective for Aaron. In fact, we laughed at it because it is so ridiculous. It's useless for me and you. I think it's the height of ignorance to attempt to make the, the circumstances of this world responsible for my character. The circumstances of the world that I'm in are responsible for my actions. Circumstances will do exactly what we want them to do. If you plant a seed of apples, you're going to get apples. I know, brilliant. The soil which, which you planted it in didn't change the fruit. If poisonous plants begin to grow, no matter how good and benevolent the soil is, the end result is a poisonous plant. Life is the same. The world can't change you. If you say to it, I will be spiritual, I will be wholly visioned, I will be highly principled, I will live my life that God received glory, I will live kingdom. If nobody else does, if the soil around me is bad, no matter what the circumstances are, I will live that God received glory, that will happen. That will develop despite the evil that might be around you. Likewise, the opposite's got to be true, they're reciprocal. If I say to the world, I will be profane, I will be evil, despite all the good conditions in the church around you, you can't say, hey, the world poisoned me. You can't say, hey, the fire made this. I think there are times in life when we have to face up to hard reality and ignore excuses. If I live against God, it's because I've chosen to. Our sins are not circumstances. They're not somebody else's fault. Saying, Gene, whoo. We're throwing haymakers here. I, I'm not trying to belittle anybody. I, I, you don't need to be balled out. But I think the quicker we mature to some facts, the more hope there is that we will turn, confess, and face reality. So look at a spiritual mirror. Am I happy with what I see? Or have I found ways to kind of create an alternate, uh, alternate reality? Am I happy at what, at what I see? Or have I rationalized a lot of stuff? Am I happy at what I see? Or is it the fire's fault? Have I, have I lived in the land of excuses, or am I being honest? Am I enjoying this fellowship with the one who calls me to live kingdom? Can I say like John Paul Shea, my God, I've done the best I could with the material you've given to me. Or have I little by little by little hardened my heart to the Holy Spirit because I have found excuses and I found reasons because if you want to, you can. Hey, the fire made this. Moses, Mr. No-Nonsense guy in the Bible, cut to the chase. He gets up 
And it says, here's the next thing that's going to happen. Exodus 32, 26, take a look. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Moses doesn't mess around. <laughs> who is really on the Lord's side? You see, we have to have character to answer that, honestly. Who is living kingdom? Who is on the Lord's side? Or who is being, being swayed by the crowd that we are, are around? Who is on the Lord's side or who is just going to church? Who is on the Lord's side able to say no when everybody says yes or yes when everybody says no? Who is really on the Lord's side? Now, let me give you a satanic trick that I think he's using in our culture today. He's saying, hold it here. You're gradually moving toward Christ. You're going in the right direction. The fact of the matter is, you're closer to Christ now than you were a couple years ago. You've been getting more information, and I think that this ought to be a safe place to get information. Now, there's kind of a cliche, a safe place to hear a dangerous message. Okay, you ought to be able to get more information. But Satan begins to make that information go forever. We're, we're researching Christ in our own life forever. And his effective trick, it's a subtle trick. You know you're going in the right direction. The problem is he has you always moving, never really accepting, never really laying down my life before Christ, never saying, I choose to live for you and live kingdom, and where I've sinned, forgive me. But Satan says, you're going in the right direction. Just keep going. He never has you arrived. This is, this is biblical. We, these guys, both King Agrippa and Felix, were moved by the teaching of Paul. Even says they were conscious stricken, stricken probably under conviction, but we have no evidence of them ever really becoming a follower of Christ. They were so close, really considering, really weighing all the options, really, and it's never got there. King Herod's my favorite guy. He loved to talk to, to, talk to John the Baptist. He'd go here and preach. He would go into that filthy prison just to pull up a chair and ask John more questions. Herod loved being with John the Baptist. Fascinated by the guy's message. Fascinated by the story of Jesus. He loved John's message right up until the day he, until he beheaded John. You know, we could get close. I think close is feeling sorry for sin. I think close is going, you know, that guy's weird, but he's right. I think close is really enjoying church. I think close is a lot of things, but they kind of end up in the pocket of excuses. And we say, yeah, but the bottom line is the fires created this. I think there's got to be that point in time when we don't just feel sorry for sin. I think there's got to be that point in time when we don't say the fire has made this and all excuses finally burn away. I think there's got to be that point in time when we say, I'm done getting closer. I want in. God in heaven. I've sinned against you. I have not lived that you receive glory. I don't want to just hear the stories anymore. I want you. I think we reach that point when we finally say the fire didn't make this. We reach that point where the excuses burn away. Let's just stand together this morning. Father, we just come before you. And we thank you for your holy presence. There is a holy presence here. There's a stillness that's more than just stillness. 
I believe that you are speaking to hearts and our very souls. And there are people that, that are saying, I'm not a bad person, this is not, a, this is not an issue of good and bad. But I have found every reason to be sorry for my sins. And I found every excuse. But I've never really come face to face with Christ and said, God in heaven, I've sinned against you. God in heaven, let me begin new. Let me begin fresh. Forgive me. I take responsibility. Forgive me. That I might begin a journey with you. That I might actually begin to live kingdom. I want you to receive glory by my life. I will not be swayed by the majority around me because I have you. Empower me. Give me discernment. Give me wisdom. But God in heaven, I want a savior. Forgive me. I leave the land of excuses long behind. I pray for your power in my life and your power that we sense in this room right now. And we praise you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me, we always do, let me just take a moment and share a little bit. We want to get into Revelation next week. A much deeper thought. The beginning of Revelations is a letter to seven churches. Did you ever wonder why those seven? And what happened at those seven? Why, why, did, why did we have to write those seven churches? And why are they in that order? They're in a very specific order. And what do we care? The seven churches of Revelation is a very important topic for us to understand. Next week we want to unpack the entire story of those seven churches, the order they're in, and how they impact our lives today. You do not want to miss the important time as we gather together next Sunday. But let's keep this Sunday going. Let's just praise him one more time.